3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM this morning on our breakfast show with Grace. How are we all this morning, listeners? It's so good to be back. Uh, since this is my first time in for this year on 3CR with, uh, for 2024. So a very happy new year to our listeners. I can't believe this is already the third week in into 2024. It's kind of crazy that we are already in this third week. Time really do flies now, do we? Well, I'm going to be hosting a show alone today. So it's really exciting, but I'm also a bit nervous because I've been having quite a long break before coming back here. But it feels so refreshing and so nice to be back. And yeah, giving myself this challenge <laughs> this early morning for 2024. So, well, we've got a full show for you today. Later, at around 7.50 and 8.10 do come, do come in and listen. Do tune in to listen uh, for our breakfast show as we're going to be looking at the South Africa's case against Israel in regards to the International Court of Justice. And then after that, we'll be looking at media censorship in the adult industry. So yeah, really exciting stuff there. But first up, I've got a bit of headlines for you before we move on for the first segment of our show for today. So today marks 100 days since the beginning of Israel's latest onslaught on Palestine. And an estimated 4% of Gaza's population, over 90,000 people, have been either killed, injured or are missing, according to the Euromed Human Rights Monitor. In a statement released on Friday, around 70% of the Gaza Strip civilian infrastructures and facilities have been destroyed by Israel's continuous land, sea and air attacks. The monitor adds that as of Thursday, at least 30,000 Palestinians have been killed and 1.9 million have been displaced since October 7th. Despite that, Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared that the country will pursue its assault on Palestine until victory and will not be stopped by anyone in a speech on Saturday. The Australia Open's director, Craig Tiley, has defended the tournament's financial well-being at the event's launch yesterday. Tiley denied that the organisation would not have been insolvent without taxpayer support, insisting there would have been options for us. This is despite Tennis Australia's financial records revealing that the state government forgave a $43 million loan occurred to the organisations during the pandemic. 
In the 2023 financial year, Tennis Australia reported a surplus of $62 million, with its losses increasing to $6.4 million. The event is targeting a record 1 million visitors for this year's iteration. The new JN1 coronavirus subvariant has become the most prevalent single strain in Victorian water, wastewater samples, according to the latest data from the Victorian government. Data from the seven-day period ending on the 2nd of January show hospitalizations are at their highest level since March and June of last year, with an average of 377 hospitalized per day. The JN1 subvariant evolved from Omicron, but an additional spike protein has been found to make it even more transmissible than its predecessors. In a report published in the journal Lancet, researchers declared JN1 one of the most immune-evading variants to date. So yeah, that's all I've got for you for headlines this morning. Now, we're going to go into a song first before we start out our first segment for today. This is called Real Love by Chelsea Wilson. Take my clothes 
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM this morning with the breakfast show. Now, we're going to be listening to a segment from 3CR presenter Dale of Program for Defense of, of Defense of Government Schools, also known as DOGS, where it's talking about the reports on press release hashtag 1002 with information that the Swedish school minister is stating the failure of their free private school system. Now, this is actually an excerpt of a longer discussion. So we're just going to take a listen to this short interview first. Press release 1002. Swedish schools minister declares free private school system a failure. So, in a recent book, Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed Its Schools, Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner put forward a proposal to fully fund private schools, subject to them not charging fees and not enrolling students on the basis of ability. In their press release 997, Dogs criticised this proposal and referred to a similar criticism produced by Trevor Cobalt of Save Our Schools. There was nothing particularly original in the Greenwell-Bonner proposal, although it was understandable that they were casting about for any compromise that might present a way out of the current intractable education crisis. For Australia is swiftly descending into an inequitable, class-ridden and tribal society as we divide our children on the base of class, creed and colour. Similar free private school experiments have been introduced in the charter schools of America, the British free schools of Michael Gove and the Friskola of Sweden. But public school advocates in both America and Britain have little time for either the charter schools or the British free schools. And now, according to the UK Guardian, the Swedish schools minister has declared the free private school system a failure. The following report from Miranda Bryant in Stockholm on the 10th of November describes the situation in that country. So Lotta Edholm, 
aims to limit the profit-making ability of Friskola in her plans for education reform. Sweden has declared a system failure in the country's free schools, pledging the biggest shake-up in 30 years and calling into question a model in which profit-making companies run state education. Sweden's free scholar privately run schools funded by public money, have attracted international acclaim, including from Britain, with the former education secretary Michael Gove using them as a model for hundreds of new British free schools opened under David Cameron's government. But in recent years, a drop in Swedish educational standards, rising inequality and growing discontent among teachers and parents has helped fuel political momentum for change. A report by Sweden's biggest teachers' union, Sveriges Lerare, warned in June of the negative consequences of having become one of the world's most marketised school systems, including the viewing of pupils and students as customers and a lack of resources resulting in increased dissatisfaction. The union demanded the phasing out of for-profit and marketised schools and in the meantime that they reinvested any profits in their businesses. Joint stock companies are not a long-term sustainable form of operation to run school activities, it said. Now, Lotta Edholm, a Liberal who was appointed schools minister last year during the formation of Sweden's moderate party-run minority coalition, has launched an investigation into the issue which she said would oversee her plans for reform. It will not be possible in the reformed system to take out profits at the expense of a good education, she told The Guardian at the Ministry of Education and Research in Stockholm. Edholm said she planned to severely limit schools' ability to withdraw profits and to introduce fines for free schools that did not comply. It can't be that the state pumps in lots of money so that you can improve your business and at the same time a portion of that money goes out to you as profits. That we will put a stop to, she said. The largest profits were made by upper secondary schools, known in Sweden as Gymnasia Skola, she said. There it has been easier to make profits through having bad quality. There are thousands of free scholar, directly translated as independent schools, but known as free schools, across Sweden, with a higher proportion in cities. About 15% of all primary school children, 6 to 16 year olds, and 30% of all upper secondary school pupils, 16 to 19 year olds, go to a free school. Edholm said she could not put a number on how many schools were experiencing these issues, but said the problem lay in the system itself. It's not just a problem that's in a number of schools, but it becomes a system failure of everything. She also pledged to tighten rules on religious influence on teaching in religious schools and to strengthen rules on school ownership, citing a government report that warned free schools could be exploited by Swedish and foreign owners wanting to influence society. Edholm also accused some free schools of grade inflation, with teachers awarding children grades that were too high, creating an imbalance across the whole system. It's understood to be a particular problem in free schools with a low proportion of qualified teachers and schools run as joint stock companies. Free schools tend to give higher grades than municipal schools. 
That risks that in the end it could be that the municipal schools give higher grades and that in turn is very bad, she said. It's unfair and it leads additionally to students thinking they are much more knowledgeable than they are. So the dog's position. As dogs have constantly argued since 1964, the current downward trajectory into inequality can only be halted by the taking over of the private religious sector, which taxpayers are already subsidising to extremely high levels, and the withdrawal of state aid from schools that wish to be genuinely independent. And you can find a link to that Guardian article contained within this press release on the DOGS website at www.adogs.info. The 11th annual Setting Sun International Film Festival is calling for entries for its 2024 festival. Enter your short film or feature and help celebrate the occasion. There are loads of great prices, including $1,000 for best film. For your chance to be in the running and see your film screened at the gorgeous Sun Theatre or at Kindred Studios, both in Yarraville, head to settingsun.com.au. Entries close on the 31st of January 2024. Setting Sun is a 3CR supporter. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how Three CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on our breakfast show with Grace over here. And so the excerpt that you were listening to before was from Dale Bridge of Defence of Government Schools reporting on the press release hashtag 1002 
with information that the Swedish school minister stating the failure of their free private school system. So it was an example of a longer discussion. If you want more information, head to treesia.org.au slash dogs. And the program airs every Saturday from on the mornings from 12 to 1 p.m. Now we're going to look into another segment. This is from Jan Ballard of Tuesday Home Time, speaking to Associate Professor Jake Lynch from Sydney University and the unholy alliance between Australian mass media and the Australian Jewish press. Let's take a listen. The following is a report from the 1st of November. The Director of the New York Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has left his post protesting that the UN is failing in its duty to prevent what he categorises as genocide of Palestinian civilians in Gaza under Israeli bombardment and citing the US, the UK and most of Europe as wholly complicit in the horrific assault. He wrote on 28th of October to the UN High Commissioner in Geneva saying, this will be my last communications to you in my role in New York. Also complicit in what has been named, quote, as an unholy alliance in defending Israeli slaughter of Palestinian civilians, unquote. These are the words of Jake Lynch, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney. Who are you including in this unholy alliance defending the Israeli slaughter of Palestinian civilians? I just think it's it's a kind of reactivation of um, a fairly normal pattern that the classic account of um, influences on news content by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, the propaganda model, is very much borne out here. That what you've got is a consensus among the leaders of Australian political parties that extends almost complete impunity to Israel. And the, the Murdoch press in particular uh, is inclined to pick up on that. And in that, it's, uh, it really is, either consciously or not, echoed by and echoing the Australian Jewish news. And that's a, a concern that the, the readers of those newspapers are really in what's called a media filter bubble, although they never really hear any heterodox perspectives. To your knowledge, is mass media the same or similar in other Western countries? Well, certainly in the UK, uh, the Murdoch media is generally to be found dwelling on what it conceives as wedge issues to try to split off or demoralise support for left-wing politics. And so they include the familiar panoply of um, immigration, asylum-seeking, soft on crime, etc. And in that, they, they really position themselves as an accomplice to power. It's therefore an obstacle to reform, certainly in the case of the UK with um, the leadership of Labour by Jeremy Corbyn. That's the last time Labour were really proposing any serious reforms. The accusation of anti-Semitism was weaponized against Jeremy Corbyn with no basis. In fact, it was an infamous scam. But uh, the Murdoch press were definitely uh, playing a, a very um, vanguardist role in that campaign. And it did link up with other factions of the British establishment, unfortunately, to bring down Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And that has been replaced by Keir Starmer, who is completely on board with the uh, apologism for Israel's war crimes in Gaza. 
And what methods do they use to demonise or threaten journalists? Well, there's been an interesting example recently where the ABC reporter Tom Joyner, who is generally at their Istanbul bureau, uh, was covering the early stages of this war. The Australian picked up on a message he'd exchanged in a WhatsApp group um, about some of the wilder claims that were made about the Hamas raid on October the 7th, in particular the claim that they had decapitated 40 babies. And in this WhatsApp group, which was really only two other journalists, uh, Tom Joyner described that claim as bullshit. And of course, the Australian, through its media correspondent, Sophie Ellsworth, seized on this apparent gaffe and uh, publicised it. It was never intended for any wider circulation than this WhatsApp group uh, and used it as a, a source of embarrassment to the ABC to get Tom Joyner taken off the story. And indeed, he was, he was sent back to the Istanbul Bureau. But we should note in passing that the story indeed was bullshit. So he was being penalised for being correct about it. He might not quite have used that language on air, uh, but nonetheless, he got it right. And media, including the Australian, which gave it any uh, uncritical play or airtime, uh, were misleading their audiences. So the boot was very much on the wrong foot there. And The Guardian and SBS, how do they fare? Well, certainly The Guardian's reporter has been uh, playing a prominent role in trying to challenge the Israelis on well-attested allegations of war crimes. Uh, It's very difficult to square the facts as they unfold of Israel's assault on Gaza with the provisions of international humanitarian law. Now, the uh, Israeli ambassador who appeared at the National Press Club just engaged in the familiar denialism. And, of course, what that does is, is that it retains contestability. In other words, war crimes cannot be reported as accomplished facts. Uh, they must instead be treated as claims in remitted into the kind of, on the one hand, on the other hand, in the end, only time will tell, kind of pattern, which inevitably drains them of uh, some of their, their force and content. It's exactly the same uh, last year when the... CNN reporter um, Shireen Abu Akleh was killed. And it was obvious that it was from an Israeli sniper's bullet, but Israel denied it while it was a story that was being prominently reported and therefore obliging journalists who follow the rules to keep on with the kind of claim and counterclaim kind of uh, uh, pattern of, of reporting. And only later uh, did the UN conclude that yes, it must indeed have been a deliberate assassination by an Israeli sniper. And of course, findings by the UN are reported, but by that time the heat has died off, so the mission has been accomplished with regard to to throwing grit in the face of global audiences. They don't like journalists or others bringing up what happened in Gaza, in Palestine, prior to October the 7th, the past 100 years. Yeah, it's all about backgrounds and contexts. Look, I mean, the preamble to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights actually says that human rights must be protected by law, lest man, and forgive the dated gendered reference, but we can say lest human beings, are forced to have recourse as a last resort to armed rebellion in the face of tyranny and oppression. Now, a 16-year illegal collective punishment blockade on Gaza and a regime which all competent authorities agree is one of apartheid is the dictionary definition of tyranny and oppression. Now, What are human rights in this context? Well, any international formulation of human rights begins with the phrase, all peoples have the right to self-determination. And of course, the Palestinians have seen all the 
diplomatic, political and legal rights, uh, legal uh, pathways, I should say, to the realisation of that right, systematically closed off with the collusion of actors in the international community, such as Australia. So the Hamas raid on October the 7th is the inevitable consequence of that situation, foreseen in as many words as long ago as 1948 in the preamble to the commercially produced newspaper, the Australian Jewish News. However, uh, we now do have a thriving and flourishing independent media sector. Uh, so we have pearls and irritations as one example, which has rapidly attained quite a wide reach and, and um, significant daily circulation. And that does field uh, a great many extremely well-informed heterodox perspectives, including from members of the Australian Jewish community, including on events in Palestine. Concentrates mainly on Australia's relations with our region and in particular China. And that's significant because really the one should be seen as a subset of the other. You know, the relationships have never been better encapsulated than in the phrase from Casper Weinberger when he was U.S. Secretary of Defense under President Ronald Reagan. Israel is America's unsinkable battleship in the Middle East. And the role of the Biden administration in the present conflict in Gaza is conceived as part of the neoconservative plan uh, for a new American century to extend U.S. dominance over this century directly across the aspirations of millions of people from Beijing to Beijing, we might say. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's closely related to the maneuverings in our quadrant of the globe, which are inscribed in the AUKUS submarine pact, for example. It's a very clear plot to precipitate an attempt to win a war with China to reiterate American dominance over the Eastern Pacific. And it's extremely dangerous and counterproductive to Australia. That is the main theme of independent media, such as Pearls and Irritations. And the links to the events in Gaza are being spelt out there by a wide range of expert witnesses to good effect. So now we do have a more heterodox and more variegated media landscape than we perhaps had before. Do you follow social media to get a feel of what's put up there? There's a lot on social media. Of course, it's easy to be overwhelmed, but uh, one, one can still look out for those uh, basic principles. That if you see a formulation of this conflict in, in dyadic terms, then you should proceed with caution. Uh, because, of course, um, you know, it's very easy to be shoved into the kind of black versus white, good versus bad kind of formulation. What we should instead be doing is attending to these issues of background and context in search of both causes of and potential exits from uh, the conflict, exits from the, the violence in a very broad range of different settings, different contexts. In particular, what has been the perennial missing element, uh, including in phases where uh, peace talks have been on the agenda between Israel and the Palestinians, has been any firm boundary or hindrance on Israel's own behavior. So, for example, the International Criminal Court um, has been investigating now for some years. There was no reason and there is no reason why the ICC shouldn't have ruled straight away that the entire Jewish settlement building program in the West Bank is illegal and a war crime because there's one unambiguous line in the Fourth Geneva Convention. The occupying power must not move any part of its population into the territory it occupies. By contrast, this year, 2023, will have been a record year for settlement building in the West Bank. Now, no one's going to make a news story out of 
bricklayers laying bricks or scaffolding teams putting up scaffolding to build houses, but that is nonetheless consequential. Uh, and it's an essential context in which journalists should seek to reflect the underlying processes that are going on in the conflict that are leading up to the observable events. And only when we can apprise ourselves of those aspects can we be satisfied we've got a fuller picture, whether we access it through social media or, as I would recommend, independent media such as Pearls and Irritations. I must mention public radio, particularly 3CR, almost continuously since our exception in 1976, we have featured Palestinian voices and Palestinian-owned programs. It's a, a really uh, a very good example of the, um, the account of influences on news content in the propaganda model put forward by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman. But 3CR um, is not influenced by the interests of owners and advertisers because it's a public uh, station and it doesn't have any advertisers, which is great. Uh, but it's not exempt from, from flack. And this is what uh, the designers' lobby specializes in. Uh, both exerted um, up front in, in overt criticisms and working behind the scenes. You know, the Australian Jewish News ran a piece by uh, a lobbyist from IJAC, the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, where the piece was, was boasting about the influence that had been brought to bear behind the scenes on SBS Arabic News. And, of course, one of the non-executive directors of SBS now is Vic Aladef, a former editor of the Australian Jewish News. So we can guess through what channels that influence was exerted behind the scenes. And that's also a form of flat. It doesn't just have to take the, 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 the form of uh, uh, kind of vituperative criticism above the line. It can also be exerted behind the scenes. And perhaps that's more insidious. What do you know of the Zionist lobby in the US and how that influences the media? The role of the Zionist lobby in the United States is, um, is founded on a myth. And I don't mean that in the, uh, the sense of being um, false or unfounded. It's, it's, it's of mythical status. Where the UN um, in 1947, as it had been newly formed after World War II, was due to consider the partition of Palestine. And it looked as though the vote was going to go against the partition of Palestine, that the leaders of the pro-Israel lobby in the United States approached Truman administration, which was then facing midterm elections. And they said, look, everyone knows most American Jews vote, vote Democrats, but we will withhold our votes and may even give them to the Republicans at these midterm elections, thereby rendering you, President Truman, a lame duck for the remainder of your term, unless you use your position as the host of the United Nations and the most powerful member state in it to ensure the passage of this partition plan. So the vote was postponed. The Philippines ambassador, who had declared himself an opponent of the plan, was sent home and replaced by somebody who would vote for it. France was blackmailed with the possible uh, withholding of payments under the Marshall Plan uh, at a time in its history when it was a nation completely gutted and ruined by war, uh, of course. So all sorts of means were used to ensure the passage of that partition plan in the first place. And that then hardened into a founding myth of the action of the Zionist lobby in U.S. politics. So if, uh, I mean, even now, for example, a recent poll shows that of all registered Democrats in the United States, the number who approve of Israel's military action in the Gaza Strip is 33 percent, 
those who disapprove of it is 49%. So far, a far larger proportion of Democrats disapprove of it than approve of it. Uh, but even so, that myth still persists, uh, and, and that's uh, still a kind of um, a, a major hindrance of the operation of uh, politics on the centre-left in the United States. And that is, of course, therefore reflected in the media uh, that um, uh, correspond with that section of political opinion. So you're talking about the New York Times, you're talking about MSNBC, etc. I mean, it must be said that the New York Times, for example, a very interesting piece of journalism after uh, Israel's attack on the Gaza Strip back in 2021, uh, they uh, used video evidence to mount their own investigation and prove that the buildings that were struck by Israeli bombs on that occasion could not possibly have had any conceivable purpose except civilian. So there are still um, oppositional and, shall we say, uh, duty-driven instincts to investigative reporting, even when that refutes the Israeli line. Uh, But there is that kind of uh, uh, latent hindrance on um, both political and media representations in the United States which stems from that original mythical event back in the 1940s. Finally, what can be done to stop the ethnic cleansing now underway in Gaza? How do you counter it? About a week in, um, after the um, original Hamas raid, that's when Anthony Blinken started talking about the restraints that Israel needed to observe. And his phrase was that democracies have higher obligations. I think that's uh, partly because the Americans had received strong signals from a number of players they needed to keep on side, the Egyptians, the Saudis, the Indians, for example, uh, that life would become very difficult if it was seen that Israel were just going ahead with um, you know, blatant war crimes. They are going ahead with blatant war crimes, but maybe there is a little bit uh, of restraint that's attributable to that. That was then uh, echoed in the way these things are by other leaders. That uh, uh, was on a Friday, so then the following Monday, Anthony Albanese in the Australian Parliament starts talking about protecting civilian lives and the laws of war. And that was echoed by other leaders after that first phase when Israel appeared to have carte blanche. That is, in turn, I think, largely attributable to the groundswell of public protest there has been around the world. And you saw that in the UN vote last week when the motion was put in the General Assembly for a ceasefire. And the number of countries that actually voted against it, that is to say, with Washington and the Israelis, was down to 12. So Australia abstained. Australia shouldn't have abstained. It should have voted for it. But, you know, even the even the deranged Rishi Sunak regime in Britain uh, only abstained instead of opposing it outright. A number of European Union countries backed it. Uh, and, and that was quite an indicator of the uh, dwindling global diplomatic support for Israel, which can only have dwindled still further in the period since. But that's because governments are having to witness and respond to the groundswell of public protest that has been. So we need to keep that up. Uh, we need to seek out routes into the political opportunity structure. So I should be going to Anthony Albanese's office this afternoon where there's a rally and starting to circulate my proposal for a left vote strike. You know, I mean, these incidents don't embarrass parties of the right. The coalition parties here in Australia are not in the least bit embarrassed about this because they wear their sociopathy on their sleeve. Everyone knows what they represent. 
the social democratic parties of the world are supposed to represent something different. And they need to come to a fork in the road when there is such an instance as this. And the road that's marked support, uncritical support for Israel, needs to have a sign nailed firmly to the bottom of it. Do not go down this road because you will lose. So we need to enforce this now. You know, we need the Albanese Labour government to be aware that it's in serious danger of losing the next election because it's taken the attitude it has to Israel and Palestine over this particular this particular episode. Uh, and that really has to be the change away from that mythical event and the Democratic Party support in the United States back in the 1940s. That's what has to be switched fundamentally, and it's in our hands to do so. And that was Jan Bartlett of Tuesday Home Time speaking to Associate Professor Jake Lynch from Sydney University talking about the unholy alliance between Australian mass media and the Australian Jewish press. Now you can catch Jan Bartlett on Tuesday Home Time for local, national and international interviews every Tuesday from 4 to 6pm via au slash streaming or via podcast or you can oh sorry you can go you can go on streaming or via podcast on streetsia.org.au slash hometime dash tuesday now we're going to go into a song this is called black armband by john hopes bodak hey there johnny this song it is for you It's not behind the razor wire Hidden from our view And that's why I'm wearing A black armband A black armband To demonstrate my stand White picket financial security Leafy suburban nuclear family the benefits of a growing economy Middle class utopia where the market is so free But I got a better term for all this inequity It's not incentivation, men's is nor prosperity Not back to the future to 1953 It's myopia, which means that you can barely see Balaclava guards, Rottweilers and Alsatians Such is the face of your industrial relations Anti-union tyranny right across the nation On the waterfront and down the mines You're proud of your creation you got the goal to call it reforms in the workplace When waging war on workers is a retrograde disgrace You want us cap in hand to crawl your smug and mean and base You want our rights and hard-earned gains to sink without a trace Songs aiming at you too. You're mean of spirit, you and all your crew. 
And that's why I'm wearing a black armband A black armband to demonstrate my stand A hundred and twenty years of public education Is being destroyed by your discrimination In favor of the rich or some denomination You call that a fair go, it's an abomination There's now freedom of choice in our school And so you say Who do you think you're fooling when most of us can't pay? Then if funding the elite without taxes is okay, then this nation will fall like a dingo-stricken prey. And hey there, Johnny, this song it is for you. I see rap and ruin and all the things you do You can tell cause I'm wearing a black armband For all those stolen generations you can't understand Well, here's your report card You don't get many marks On greenhouse emissions and logging national parks And reconciliation You've chained up all our hearts You score a zero just to know You get a buggery of arts Of liberty, equality, fraternity I didn't know Ownership of shares is democracy The way to go But on a privatized planet I guess it must be soul Where any soul is bought and sold Your marks are very low Stand for, shrivel up and die We'll throw it overboard And that won't be a lie But until that day I wear a black armband In mourning for what you are doing Right across the land But until that day I wear a black armband In mourning for what you are doing Right across this, right across this, right across this, right across this land Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. And you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And the song just on before was Black Armband by Jordan Hosperdarki. So now we're gonna, I'm going to be speaking to Donna Rothwell, who is the Professor of International Law at Australian National University. We're going to be discussing about the South Africa's court case against Israel for the genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. Good morning, Donald. Good morning. Awesome. So can we first get to understand a bit about what is the South Africa's case about and in regards to the International Court of Justice as well, what, what is it basically? Sure. So the International Court of Justice is the highest court in the international legal system. It's actually an organ of the United Nations. So the United Nations Charter of 1945 references the International Court of Justice and so the court was established uh, when the United Nations was created following World War Two, And the court is set up to decide disputes between states or countries uh, in the international system. So South Africa has brought uh, this case against Israel under the provisions of the 1948 uh, Genocide Convention, which was a convention concluded uh, at the end of World War Two and was a convention designed to prohibit and outlaw and make illegal uh, any acts of genocide committed by any state. Mm. And both Israel and South Africa are parties to the convention. And so, in very simple terms, South Africa has taken Israel to the International Court of Justice, alleging that Israel's conduct during its military operations in Gaza is uh, a genocide being committed against the Palestinian people. Mm, I see. And just to be clear, is is it any country can go, can go to this ICJ, uh, International Court of Justice, to sue, a, to sue another nation, or is it just the ones who have signed the convention? In, in simple terms, just the countries who are, uh, are parties to the genocide convention, the International Court has a series of very technical rules over what we call jurisdiction, which deals with who can or cannot take cases before the court. But in this instance, because both Israel and South Africa are parties to the Genocide Convention, Mm. that by and large resolves that issue of jurisdiction. But your question is really alluding to the interesting element of the case, and that is that there's Mm. no suggestion that a genocide is being committed against South Africa. Uh, South Africa, of course, is not a party to the military dispute between Israel and Hamas. And South Africa, of course, is very geographically distant uh, from these events uh, in Israel and the Palestinian territories. Um, But South Africa says 
that they're a party to the Genocide Convention. There are a series of obligations created under the Genocide Convention to prevent acts of genocide. And as a result, South Africa says that it has the ability to take Israel to the International Court to hold Israel account for its actions. I see. And basically, they recently went into a hearing just last week on January 11th and 12th. So what was addressed there most importantly? What was exactly like, what what does South Africa say as well? Well, first of all, it needs to be observed that these were just preliminary hearings. And South Africa sought to have these urgent hearings before the court because they were asking the court to issue orders to prevent any ongoing conduct of acts of genocide. There will be, in a number of years' time, a much more substantive hearing on what are called the merits. But South Africa's case before the International Court last week was to seek to show to the court that Israel's conduct in Gaza Mm -hmm. against the Palestinian people amounted to genocide, and that also uh, Israel's conduct in Gaza amounted to what is known as genocidal intent. So there are two critical elements to be able to prove genocide under international law. One is intent, and the other is conduct. And so South Africa focused its case uh, around intent and conduct, referencing uh, many statements made by Israeli politicians and military leaders and others that are out in the public domain, and then, of course, directly referencing the conduct of Israel's military in Gaza against the Palestinian people. Mm. And so will, how, how would South Africa, South Africa will be able to prove for this uh, in their case? I think what your question is alluding to, and, and this is an important point, that um, at this point in time, um, South Africa's evidence before the court uh, was not at the level of detail that one would expect in a final case, which was deciding this issue on what international lawyers call the merits. Because this was an urgent case, because it was an expedited case, South Africa sought to rely upon all of the material that is predominantly in the public domain. They also made written submissions uh, before the international court. But Most importantly, at this point, South Africa only needs to demonstrate that there is a plausible case, a plausible case, Mm. that Israel is committing acts of genocide uh, as opposed to a clear, conclusive, final determination by the court that genocide is occurring, which, as I said, would probably take a number of years to finally be determined. Mm, I see. And uh, I I understand that obviously with cases like this in regards to genocide, it's definitely not common. And there's obviously not many in history of of hearings like this and information in regards to court hearings against genocide. So have there, have there been any success? Or like, is there, is, how, how, how can countries be held accountable with such laws and for, for cases like this in regards to genocide? Yes, and I think what your question's alluding to is that there are, of course, really two ways in which genocide can be upheld and determined by a court. The first is by the International Criminal Court, Mm. and that is where individuals 
uh, are charged and convicted with the crime of genocide. But this is not that sort of case. This is an instance where, as you suggest, uh, a country, in this case Israel, is being brought before the International Court and it's alleged that Israel's conduct is in breach and in, in violation of the Genocide Convention. So, interestingly, the International Court is also considering a similar genocide case at the moment in that instance with respect to the conduct of Myanmar uh, against the Rohingya uh, people. Mm. And that was a case that was brought by uh, the Gambia. So the International Court actually now has two cases, very similar in nature, brought before it alleging the conduct of genocide uh, by Israel and also Myanmar, but also brought by countries who have said, well, we're seeking to intervene in these cases to uphold the obligations under the Genocide Convention. Mm, I see. And, but would, what, let's say if th- these cases brought forward, uh, actually, like, uh, when it comes to the final hearing already, and uh, let's say South, Afri- South Africa won in this case, what consequences would uh, a country have if once they have lost the case, like, uh, if, for example, with Israel, if let's say if they've lost the case, what con- what consequences would they have? I understand that, like, usually countries, uh, they may not necessarily listen to these laws as well? That's right. So, <clears throat> at, at the moment, we're anticipating the International Court to give its decision on the request for provisional measures uh, that could be handed down in somewhere between seven to ten days. We'll need to see what the court has to say. The court could possibly dismiss South Africa's case, say that it has no foundation, that it has no jurisdiction, or it could accept the South African case and issue provisional measures. Now, we'll have to wait and see exactly what those provisional measures say, and If they are provisional measure orders, we'll have to see how Israel responds to those. But um, the International Court, while its decisions are binding, the International Court doesn't have an ability to enforce its decisions uh, as other courts may do. Uh, Is it possible if you could give an example for um, something? Because like you mentioned, that the court cannot enforce these decisions. Is there an example where like a country has never listened to these provisional measure orders before? Yes, well, most prominently at the moment, we've got a case where Ukraine brought an action against Russia following the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and Russia just completely ignored the provisional measures orders issued by the International Court. That was back in in 2022. Uh, I should say that there is a procedure under the United Nations Charter whereby the United Nations Security Council can seek to enforce the decisions of the International Court of Justice, uh, but that mechanism has been rarely uh, used. Mm, I see. Well, Donald, unfortunately, we're going to be running out of time soon. So just one last question for you. Is it at the moment still, what what can, what can we come up from for this case at the moment? Is it still too early to say since it only just started? It's really a a groundbreaking case Mm. in terms of international law. It's a a very significant case to allege a country such as Israel of acts of genocide during its military campaign in Gaza. So I think we're reaching a really seminal moment for international law over the next few weeks as we await this decision by the International Court. I see. Awesome. Thank you so much, Donald. It's been loving having you.
Nice to speak to you. Right, thank you. And that was Donald Rockwell, the Professor of International Law at Australian National University, discussing South Africa's court case against Israel for the intent of genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. Now, Tricia actually has a program dedicated to Palestinian content, and we have been broadcasting them for many, many years now. The program is called Palestinian Palestine Remembered, where we bring news and views regarding the Palestinian situation. We bring listeners to the untold side of Palestinian and slash Israel conflict. You can tune in every Saturday from 9.30am to 10am, or you can just go to our website at tricia.org.au to search for Palestine, Palestine Remembered to then tune in to listen in to the program. You're listening to Tricia 855am. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Did you know that Ripponlea Estate is recognised as a leading biodiversity hotspot within the city of Glenara? It is a haven for birds and other wildlife. Ripponlea Estate is now running bird spotting tours, providing an opportunity for the community to explore the beautiful 14 acres of gardens with a volunteer guide searching out the diverse family of birds that call Ripponlea home. Please visit ripponleaestate.com.au to view tour times and to book your tour. 
The National Trust of Australia is a 3CR supporter.
Victoria's wildlife need your help when bushfires strike. They can be injured, dehydrated or disoriented after bushfires. Call Wildlife Victoria 84007300 if you see wildlife in distress or for more information. To donate or volunteer, go to wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. VCR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and the song before just now was Flowers and Trees by the Block Brothers. Now I'm going to be speaking to Anne Reedy who is the director and co-founder of Sensuous featuring sensory adult products to help bring pleasure, romance and love into your life. Anne's journey in the business world began with a deep appreciation for the power of sensory experiences in enhancing the quality of life. Her background in adult wellness equipped her with the skills and knowledge necessary to venture into the realm of sensory innovation. Today, we're going to be talking about media gendered censorship towards female-focused sexuality products and their challenge in the adult industry. Good morning, Anne. Hello, Grace. Good morning to you, and thank you for having me on your program. No worries. Lovely to have you on the show. So, and we're going to first up, I'm going to first ask you, before we get into the discussion of media censorship, can you tell us what census products meant for advertising were rejected? And has this been a recurring case? I certainly can, Grace. Sensuous, for many years, has manufactured a range of fabulous sexual wellness products for both men and women. But, it was sadly Friends Extreme, a pleasure gel for women, that has caused the problem. Our recent ads on Facebook only showed a lovely little pink box on a silk background. However, it was reviewed and rejected, and there was absolutely no nudity or sexual innuendos there on that. Mm. And on, on the, social me- the social media platforms, was there any reason given for the female sexuality products advertisements mm-hmm. to be rejected? Yes, they said it was based um, on their platform standards in relation to nudity and sexual contact. In fact, I can quote, the platform restricts these type of ads to prevent potential sensitivities within the community and to avoid the sharing of non-consensual or underage content. That's the quote. However, we here in our company had a very, very strange anomaly arose when Mm. we discussed this ourselves, because we as a company also have some really nice, fantastic male products, Edge, Raging Bull, Raging Bull Capsules. And I can tell you, those guys' products definitely don't receive the same hostile treatment when we advertise on those platforms. Hmm, that's interesting. And mm-hmm. so then coming into the topic of media censorship, 
So why do you think there's this gender discrimination then towards advertising female sexual products? Do you think it's it is it due to the product itself or is it because the graphics of the advertisement? Aha, uh-huh. I could I could probably write a book on this one. <laughs> You've only given me ten minutes. No, no, no. You can take so, your yeah, time. No, and yeah, I, I will continue. Uh, mm-hmm. There are many, many factors behind censorship. Um, these issues are often complex, and opinions vary widely. All of our packaging and all of our products um, are really like luxurious. There's nothing there that would phase or upset anybody on our packaging. But I do believe that there is a double standard in the way that society views and judges the male and the female sexuality. As we've been in the business and we see ads, I do believe um, male sexuality is often portrayed as acceptable, where female sexuality can often be considered as taboo. Um, Even though the discussion of sexuality has become more mainstream these days, we see that shadow banning is still alive and well. I recently read an article from an American publication called Xbiz, and a company called Unbound did an experiment. They're a sexual wellness company, and they featured a female-focused ad um, which had sex toys on it, and it was immediately rejected by Facebook. However, the platform then accepted the same products when targeting a male audience. And I believe that truly highlights the double standards that I mentioned earlier. It seems to me sometimes that the suppression of female sexuality brands um, are suppressed and male products enjoy a free pass. And it's a concerning ongoing trend. Oh, wow. That's, that's very discriminative, that. It, it is a, it's a total, a total, um, you know, um, a total, uh, sorry, I've, I've lost my words there, but it's a, it's a trend we see. Male products we see all over um, being advertised, where female products are often held back or suppressed or rejected. But I also, I guess, most, most, more importantly, I think as well, is, is it because it's what's generally the mindset towards upsetting intimate wellness products? Is this what's affecting the then discriminative gendered mindsets? And and generally also, like, has there been any negative reviews towards sensual, sensuous products being created? I can honestly say that sensuous products have not received any negativity or bad reviews. In fact, over the last few years, major supermarkets and pharmacy chains have been knocking on our doors, asking for our products to become part of their core sexual wellness lines to be available to their customers. We're told that their customers are looking for our types of products and want easy access to them. You can probably step out of your office and you can walk into any high street and Coles and Woolworths, you will find our range sitting there neatly displayed amongst the condoms, lubes, and pregnancy testing kits. Mm. And we know the customers want to be able to buy them in that kind of environment. I see. Wow. So can we basically say that the mindset towards accepting intimate wellness products are generally much more accepted now? So, And that, should, and that basically isn't a problem here. Um, it's becoming easier. I can say that. It is becoming easier. Um 
And people are probably these days, I think, more open to talking about sexual wellness as well. Whereas at one time, when we first started the company many years ago, mm. it was a really hard slog discussing our products with buyers. Um, they really were a little bit scared, I think, sometimes of putting our products, you know, into mainstream outlets. Mm, I see. And... So, um, unfortunately, I'm going to be running out of time very soon already. Uh, I would, I would really love to have you longer on the show, but I just <laughs> <laughs> I probably just got past past this bit. Okay, <laughs> no worries. So, I, I, just one last question for you: yeah. how, how do you think we can foster this inclusive mindset towards sexuality mm. to overcome the stigma towards female-focused sexuality mm. brands? Well, we here at Sensuous, we promote an open mindset towards sexuality. And the media outlets that we work with, we encourage them to portray female sexuality in a very respectful and empowering manner. And we certainly encourage all discussions through our PR, media releases, all social platforms, that sexual pleasure and well-being is an essential aspect of overall health and happiness for everyone. Mm, I see. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been lovely having you. Lovely to talk to you. And thank you for your time. Have a fabulous day, Grace. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye bye. Cheers. And that was Anne Reddy, who is the director and co founder of Sensuous, where they feature sensory adult products to help bring pleasure, romance, and love into your life. Anne's journey in the business world began with a deep appreciation for the power of sensories experience in enhancing the quality of life. And her background in adult wellness has equipped her with the skills and knowledge which is necessary to venture into the realm of sensory innovation. And we were basically discussing about the media gendered censorship towards female-focused sexuality brands. And if you want to learn more about Census, you can head to census.com.au and Census is spelled as S-E-N-S-U-O-U-S. So you can head to the website there if you want to learn more about their products. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Now I'm going to be bringing you a song. This is called Mother's Daughter's Wives by Judy Small. time it was fathers, the last time it was sons, and in between your husbands marched away with drums and guns, and you never thought to question, you just went on with your lives, cause all they'd taught you who to be was mothers, daughters, wives. You can only just remember the tears your mothers shed As they sat and read their papers through the lists and lists of dead And the gold frames held the photographs that mothers kissed each night And the door frames held the shocked and silent strangers from the first time it was 
Don't know what to do with the kids in January? Well, have I got news for you. 3CR is doing a live broadcast of the Tanaminaway and Morborhina commemoration at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne. It's the 17th year of the commemoration for the public execution of Tanaminaway and Morborhina, two Indigenous freedom fighters who were hung on the 20th of January for resisting white colonisation. It's a great education experience for the children. It's a children-friendly event. Come along, and if you can't come along, listen in to the first hour on Community Radio 3CR, midday to 1pm, Saturday, the 20th of January. Let it be written in the maze, the survival of a culture is the reason that we made it. Yeah. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and that beautiful Norfolk, Norf, uh, folk song just now that you were listening to was called Mother's Daughter's Wives by Judy Small. And yep, so that's basically all we got for the show today. It's a lovely and interesting start for our show live back over here on Tricia Breakfast for 2024. And actually, I just... It just popped into my mind um, suddenly uh, this thought that I have about the song just now as I was listening to it, Mother's Daughter's Wives by Judy Small. I actually visited this exhibition in NGV just last Saturday and I stumbled upon this ex- this small exhibition segment section 
at there where it was called My Mummy is Beautiful. And it was a very lovely, very heartwarming actually, seeing all the letters people have written, visitors all all around the world actually, from what I could tell from the letters, because it was all in different languages. And it was just really beautiful letters written about the reflections of their own mothers actually. So I've written one as well. I've written one for my mum and I've pasted that letter on the walls NGV had put up, National Gallery of Victoria had put up for that small exhibition. And yeah, it was very lovely. It was love, so interesting to see and so touching to read all the letters children have written for their mothers all, all around the world, see, and all, even all in the ones in different languages. Although I couldn't understand all of them, obviously, but I, the ones I could, I've it's very heartwarming. It's very touching. So yeah, if you want to write a letter to your mum, you can go there. So yes. Well, you're listening to GCR 855am and thank you so much for joining us and tune in next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.